Some of the wisest words on the topic of political leadership come from Theodore Roosevelt in a speech he gave in 1910. And I'm just going to paraphrase it. In the long run of history, the credit belongs to those who are in the arena and who, if they fail, at least fail while daring greatly so that their place will never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. It makes politics seem like a noble sport to serve, to try, and if you fail at least, well, you stood up and you gave it your best shot. These days, it seems the view of politics is a little different. Either people know nothing about how Parliament works or how the system works, but still have a view, or they believe it's all some house of cards conspiracy inhabited by rabid partisans or those simply in search of an easy job and a paycheck. So we're going to delve down a little bit into what really goes on uh, behind the scenes in politics, in political parties, and in our parliament. We have two um, political science scientists with us today. They are serious political geeks. I've got to say that this is research that you can't believe. Let me uh, introduce Jean-Francois Godbout. He is um, with the University of Montreal. He's a professor of political science. He has written a book entitled Lost on Division Party Unity in the Canadian Parliament. And it is the development of party discipline in Canada by analyzing all the votes recorded in the House and the Senate, get this, between 1867 and 2015. That is an academic exercise. We also have with us today Alex Marland. His book is entitled Whipped. Party discipline in Canada, and that is a phrase. There is a person called the whip, uh, and they are the person who is responsible for making sure that MPs, and in some cases, senators, stay in line, say what they're supposed to say, and vote the way they're supposed to vote. He is a professor of political science at Memorial. He's a Donner Prize winner from an earlier book, Canadian Politics and Democracy in the Age of Message Control, entitled brand command. So we're going to get into those issues. Let me start with Jean-Francois. Thank you so much. So just to be clear, you've analyzed every vote. You stopped in 2015, so we don't have uh, voting records since Justin Trudeau was elected. You stopped at that point. That is correct. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Uh, yes, I've uh, I've collected over the last 10 years with uh, an army of research assistants and computer <laughs> I bet program. you had an army. <laughs> yeah, well, some of it was automated, but we, we've collected all the what's called recorded divisions in parliament, so recorded mm -hmm. votes. So that's when your MP or your senator uh, goes on record and says, I am in favor or I am opposed, vote yay or nay on a specific bill or motion. So we have these votes about 10,000 uh, over time uh, in the House, for instance, uh, a little less uh, in the Senate. Right. But so we have records in, in the parliamentary debates uh, of how, you know, Johnny McDonald or Wilfrid Laurier, uh, all the politicians, all the elected members, how they voted throughout their career. And so one of the enduring puzzle of Canadian politics, as Alex, uh, you know, he studies this as well, is why yep. are parties so strong in Canada, why is party discipline so uh, so ubiquitous, right? So every party basically now tolerates very little dissensions among it mem uh, when we look at members' voting record. Uh, 
So and have I you did, seen that change over time? Is yeah, that really yes. what, okay. Yeah, exactly. So in order to get a sense of how we got there, I sort of asked myself, well, how is it, you know, at Confederation time was it? I, I suspected it was much lower than uh, in mm-hmm. terms of like unity, in terms of cohesive, the parties were, I suspected it was much lower, but I, I, I went out and dug into the data. And, and what I found is uh, there was an increase, a substantive increase throughout the 19th century, all the way up to the 1920s, more or less, where party unity increased uh, for the conservative and the liberal party in the house at an important rate up to a point where that the levels you observe around 1920s are more or less comparable to what you observe towards the end of the 20th century. Now, in the 21st century, and that's more Alex's sort of contribution, right. it's even higher now. It's like I, there's still, there was room to grow, but now it's really uh, extremely rare that you see a House member vote against the party. We saw that in their most recent uh, vote over the, the throne speech. I think an MP right. of the Bloc Québécois voted by accident. When I saw that, I was like, oh, my God, this, I told my students in the class, yes, this must be an error. And I, they didn't believe me. They thought the God doesn't know what he's talking about. But the next day, they came out and said, yeah, there was an error in recording the vote. So it's really rare that you see, especially on government motion, you see the central. So what I do is I explain what happened over time. Argument is quite long and complicated, but just to summarize it in one yeah. sentence, that's maybe three words, procedures, procedures, procedures. Government took over what, uh, you know, the debates around 1900, what was being said, what was being introduced in terms of bills and motion in the House. And they, they kind of uh, uh, weakened the influence of private members over time. And that's where you saw most of the sort of the free, uh, free spirit or free speech or whatever you want to call it. But uh, actions of, of MPs that were not controlled by parties. So these opportunities decline over time because... Rules were changed, and uh, yeah. that's the situation we were we are in now. And it can be traced back to decisions that were made a hundred years ago. That's why it's so it's so interesting in the sense that exactly the, the, the dice were already you know the, the game was Loaded. already played in 1920, yeah. and that's that's the, the argument. So that's, that's even it. free votes are not very free these days, and I think that really goes to the point. Uh, and and the. The interesting title of your book, Alex, which is Whipped, uh, which it, it does really mean that the the word of the whip, the person who's responsible for keeping everybody in line, and also I might say doling out some favors or some discipline, however that works, uh, basically is there to say you vote with us or you're not one of us. How did that become so strong from your vantage point. You've done dozens of interviews with former prime ministers and and uh, ordinary members of parliament. What did you learn? Before I can even answer that, I just have to say, it is so amazing to be talking to Senator Pamela Wallen. Like it is just a moment <laughs> of amazingness in my life. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I think the the real- You need to get a life, Alex. Well, you need- <laughs> obviously I've arrived. Uh, so the the thing to to keep in mind is when you when you talk with politicians and political staff and you talk about why is party discipline so strong sometimes i'm not sure that they themselves necessarily even know the more interviews that i did the more i've talked with people the more i've become convinced that there are incredible incredible social and structural pressures on people to toe the party line 
Um, <laughs> it begins right from the moment that you get involved with a political party, from the moment that you become a candidate and you're filling out these forms and they're they're doing this check into your background about whether or not you support party values. Um, you know, the moment you arrive on Parliament Hill, you start realizing that your ideas of potentially changing things are now going to have to involve working with a whole bunch of other people. And, you know, you want to move up the career ladder. And, and if you take a stand, you are going to cause problems for your colleagues. That was the number one thing that I find interesting is, is just about how people have challenges with uh, their colleagues. You also, though, want to be um, in favor with the party leader. Uh, whether he's prime minister or opposition leader or whatever, because if you're not, those signals will be fairly strong up and down the food chain. If you have stood in your place to criticize uh, the party or his or her behavior, it is both. It's obviously your colleagues, but also leadership. And more than that, it's the leader's staff. And this, this for me, was something <laughs> that I really yep. realized has changed, is that um, it it the staff presence in uh, caucus meetings has been increasing over time. Um, there used to be a time where caucus was really uh, an enclave. Staff weren't allowed right. to be there. And now, particularly under Justin Trudeau, there is a whole bunch of staff who is at a caucus meeting. And, you know, backbenchers are aware that, you know, these are people who can control their careers. So you better be careful about what you say in front of these people. You wrote in your in your first book um, that really MPs, uh, and I think it was, uh, of course, Pierre Elliott Trudeau that said MPs are nobody once they're uh, 10 feet from Parliament Hill. But you said they really have simply just become media brand ambassadors to represent uh, the party line, quite literally. Yeah, so this is part of what I believe in it. And really what I've done builds very well on what Jean-Francois has done. Um, right. It's making this, this argument that originally MPs were lawmakers. That was, that was mm -hmm. a lot of what they did. And they still do. And then gradually as government became larger, particularly around the 1940s and 1950s, they increasingly became constituency caseworkers. So they were helping Canadians try to navigate the difficulties of government. My argument is that another layer has been added, another role, and that role is as a brand ambassador. So in other words, you're, you know, this is not new. It's just more, it's, it's broader than it used to be. So you, prime ministers have always wanted to have backbenchers carry the government's message. It's just mm -hmm. that now that's a part of the, a defined part of the job. You are given messages all day long and staff are pumping them out for you. And of course, the, why this matters is because backbenchers become part of the government when really backbenchers are meant to hold the government to account. But that's a really, really fundamental point because as a backbencher, you are, and there used to be, you know, the whip or other such people that you could go and talk to and say, look, where I live, I think the party's just not resonating. I think it's going off the rails. We have to understand that this matters to people in my writing and other writings. And that there, there was a way to communicate that and bring that message and stand up in a caucus room and deliver it. 
much, much more difficult today. Yeah. And I think one thing that a lot of people aren't aware of is that in some ways, uh, MPs matter even less because what's happening is they're right. being pressed to collect data on the doorsteps and to put right. in these electronic consoles. And the information is then going into a database that staff can then access. So if you're an MP and you stand up in caucus and you say, yeah, but this matters in my writing, staff and others can say, well, you may say it matters, but in fact, according to the data that we have, that's not actually the case. Yeah. And not only that, but they can also get cut off from the access to the data. You're no longer an MP with the party. All of your data about your constituents vanishes. Well, and, and the party does that and the, the PMO, the prime minister's office does that uh, with, with sometimes without even the knowledge of members of parliament for the area. They go in and do robocall uh, efforts. They, they, of course, hire pollsters to go out and test the waters. And they may have way more detailed info than the member of parliament, him or herself. And so you can see how different this is compared to what uh, Jean-Francois has, has investigated yeah. because, you know, when he's looking at how things have behaved in the 18, late 1800s and early 1900s, the technology to be able to communicate the same messaging was very, very limited compared to the way things are today, mm -hmm. where everything is in the palm of your hand. So that goes back, Jean-Francois, to what you're saying about the, uh, the in slow creep of new rules um, that were put in place that that started to merge those two things. So people really started to be much more loyal to the powers that be rather than to their constituents in the first place, to the party, yeah. not the people. In a sense, uh, at, you know, at the time of Confederation and the few decades that followed, MPs, uh, like Alex says, were close to their population, to their writing. Mm -hmm. They didn't have public opinion polls. So they had, uh, you had a, a, a lieutenant for a province, the prime minister would go and ask, how are things going in uh, Ontario, Quebec, or uh, you know, the Maritimes, wherever you were from. Uh, and you, you could basically uh, get elected by knowing the names of two or 300 people in some cases. Uh, uh, and as, as you know, the size of the electorate grew, as the size of the government uh, grew, it became more and more difficult uh, to dispense patronage or to know these voters. So you rely more on the party, but the party would ask you in return to sort of support the platform that got you elected. Because before you could say, vote for me and I'll bring back patronage in the writing and I'll defend our interests and I'll break party line when it doesn't match with our what I think is in the best interest of our of our writing. And you did, you did see a lot of MPs do that. Not a, you know, it wasn't everyone, but there were quite a few mavericks or loose fish as Johnny McDonald would call them, right? <laughs> so, but over time, these, these, these sort of, you know, the modernization of the country and, uh, you know, the, the expansion of the electorate, the growth, economic growth and all that, put, you know, a, a bigger premium on party platforms and in, for to win elections, patronage reform around World War One also limited the number of jobs that you can bring back in the writing. All of this made MPs more, more uh, reliant on what the party brand meant, uh, even at that level, right? Uh, even at that point in time, I mean. Uh, so this, this sort of independence that you could break from party line and, and, and uh, you know, rely on your own personal uh, prestige to get reelected, that, that, that's 
that's very it's not it's still possible today but it was much more common to, around around the, in the 19th century and then in the first half and, of the and today we're watching prime ministers appoint uh candidates in writings despite what the voters and the local councils want was that even possible back then uh well that's a there are always cases that are yeah yeah go both ways but i think it was possible it, it might not it wasn't as organized as today, but there were conventions right. even in the 19th century, where you 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 know you would you would have to fight it off, and sometimes even physically, to get appointed as a candidate, especially in a writing that was uh, not 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 very competitive. That meaning that you, you won the the sort of the candidacy that meant you were probably going to become an MP. But in other cases. It didn't really matter which party you were from, uh, you were affiliated with. Some MPs waited until they got into parliament to declare I'm a liberal or I'm a conservative. Whoever was in power, that was uh, the, uh, because they were all men. That was my guy. Right? right, right. So that I can, and I can bring back, uh, in my writing, I can bring back uh, the benefits of the government, so patronage and whatnot. And th these, these sort of advantages slowly were centralized by party and the government and 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 therefore like those so free radicals kind of were a dying breed by the end of the 19th century i moved to ottawa in the mid 70s as a young reporter i'll claim i was 12 at the time um but it, it was the discussion then that what we were witnessing under pierre elliott trudeau was a consolidation of power in the PMO, uh, that you had very, very powerful advisors, the Jim Coots, the Keith Davies of the world, and they had figured out that decision-making had to come away not only from the MPs, um, but a little bit from the cabinet table as well, although he did have very open uh, cabinet meetings, I'll, I'll give him that. But that sense of the PMO being um, the, the central body that operates and that the information and the direction emanated from there rather than coming up from the ground. From both Alex and and uh, and you, Jean, um, I want to just hear a little bit about that. Alex, why don't you just start on that one? Well, there's there's no question that when you look at it, that there was a an expansion of the prime minister's office under Pierre Trudeau, particularly 68 to 71 seems to really uh -huh. be a very large expansion. And the thing is, there's never really been a retrenchment, that it's just been right. a, a constant development. Um, really, the research that I do is about how it's really the communications that march as it's moving on that has increased this. So the more that the prime minister's office can centralize messaging, the more power it ends up getting, the more that we pay attention to leaders the less we pay attention to regular candidates and members of parliament. Um, so for me, I think one of the, you know, a, a good way of thinking about this, about how things that were shocking at one point eventually become kind of regular, is if you think about all of the concern that occurred with uh, Stephen Harper creating this 24-7 uh, platform that involved putting out, you know, a, they had a, a photo of the day at one point, and then it became right. a right of these videos um you know in, in i think it was around 2010 when i looked at it harper put out 227 photos of the day in the entire year so there were days there were no photos at all 
And journalists were getting really upset because they had no control <laughs> over who was putting out the photographs. There was the photographer who was there, the official photographer who was getting this backstage mm -hmm. access. Now, photos and videos of the prime minister are constant all day long. And I'll just finish off by saying this. If you think about the power of the prime minister's office to do this, and it's also the other leaders' offices, what this does is this centralizes the message because who is it that's getting these photographs all day long and these videos? First and foremost, it's the partisans. It's the MPs and their staff. So they know what the message of the day is all the time. It's also a mechanism to circumvent um, any kind of journalistic assessment being uh, imposed on that message. If the pictures are out and and you're at a local news station in Regina or Saskatoon or Yorkton in, in my part of the world here, those uh, pictures, those videos are helpful because you don't have crews anywhere. So it was a way to get around the national media uh, or in the case now, I think we see differently with um, Justin Trudeau, it's a way to manage it. Um, and, and harness that force of the national media. Yeah, you're completely right. And I think we also, everything always has to be put into perspective. So, you know, a lot of the era that uh, JF, JF was looking at, really in the early 1900s, you had the party press in the late 1800s. Right. And so, you know, John A. McDonald was concerned about something. He would try to find a way to, to arrange for a conservative to buy up an entire newspaper. Um, right. So it's not like these battles between the press are entirely new. Um, but the real difference, I would argue, is the, the speed and also the consequences for going off message. If you are somebody who is affiliated with a political party and you publicly take a stand that is different than the leader, that's going to turn into drama. Your opponents are going to exploit it. They're going to try right. to stir division. They're going to say, well, which is it now? Even, even the, the prime minister or the leader's own members of the party do not agree with their position. Right. All of this ends up being turmoil. And the, one, one of the things that people told me when I was interviewing them, they, they often used this, these expressions. They said, you can't freelance. So that's a, a phrase mm -hmm. that is very common. Don't freelance. Don't have your own kind of public thinking. Um, and as well, they're always concerned about spotting daylight between what you say yeah. and what the leader says. Um, how can you operate a democracy when you have those types of constraints? <laughs> I have so seen that movie, but that's another issue. <laughs> we'll talk about that another time. So, okay, I'm going to like calling Jean-Francois J.F., do I get to do that too? Can I call you JF? That's great. Um, so about that, how when did you see any changes in in voting patterns well, over the time the, that relate to that? Yeah, in, in fact, there is also a, a centralization of parliamentary procedure that occurs uh, after World War II, especially in 1968, which you mentioned as the Pierre Trudeau majority government. Mm -hmm. What they did also was overhaul the procedures, standing orders of the House to establish permanent committees. So before bills were debated, usually on the on the whole floor of the House, so every MP had some opportunities to introduce amendments and whatnot. This was all moved to committees, and the supply procedure was modified as well. It created what uh, we know as opposition day that didn't exist before. Right. This basically gave a little more power to party leader away from backbenchers. And then in the 1980s, uh, this time still with Trudeau, uh, 
This time you had another overall of the rules uh, in 1982, which um, basically uh, cut the length of admissible length of parliamentary speech you can make. So from 40 minutes, now you can only make a 20 minute speech. Uh, and we all know that, that that's if the speaker is generous, right? But uh, before you could basically talk, talk an issue up for a long time if you organize a film. So it, it reduced the influence of, of backbencher that way. They also reduced the number of hours of sitting days, which was a great reform for uh, parents, especially women who had to care uh, of, 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 of children and whatnot. So before they used to sit until midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. Right. Week, this, this, this kind of non-business friendly schedule was, was wrecking. At least in Quebec, I, was, I, I spoke to some MPs, in MLAs, as you call them in English, we, National in French, but they were telling telling me when they had these reforms installed, it was really because the women had such a hard time to juggle their personal life with their professional life. But anyway, reducing these hours also put a, a bigger premium on government business in Parliament as opposed to issues that could be debated by private members, right? Even though they were, there, it had been some a little bit more time. Uh, in the in the, the, the daily proceedings to to debate these issues, it's still not as frequent as it was one uh, uh, if you compare it to earlier in time as it once was. So, but on more government business in the house means more control of the agenda by the government. And now, like with Andrew Shear when he was speaker, you basically had the issue of you know Michael Charm or whoever standing up can they be recognized to speak if they they don't, are not in the order decided by the party during the debates and even even on these questions now it seems that party hand a list of who can speak uh, to the speaker in the house of Commons, even though it says in the rule that the speaker will recognize whoever stands first or catches his or her eyes but in reality, we know that it's this is based on the list that the whips or the parliamentary leader hand out to the speaker. And to be on that list, Alex will tell you, you have to play nice with the leaders. <laughs> so we went from a system where you could introduce an amendment on the budget, whatever, on the Florida House, to moving stuff to committees, to basically taking away your right to speak as much as you could, to controlling what you're saying and how to control when you can access uh, you know, if you want to intervene during standing order 31 now, these one minute speech, right? Uh, there's a list controlled by the whips. And if you don't play a party game, you'll, you'll be, uh, you won't get that one minute to just talk about well, this. This goes to this whole notion of very strictly run or whipped caucuses, as it were, um, because that, that is what's happened that you cannot stand up and speak spontaneously. I mean, technically the right is there, but the speaker is unlikely to recognize you if you're not on the list, because that's all been negotiated behind closed doors with uh, the party leaders uh, or the whips, the, the ones that manage the, the activities in the House. And that's true on, on the Senate side as well. So there is that whole notion of this being the place where MPs or senators can stand and truly represent their regions is is really a bit of a fraud these days. Alex, do you want to take that on? Yeah. Well, the first thing I think a lot of a lot of MPs and others would say that this exists for a reason. I mean, you, you mm -hmm. have to do this. If you don't do this, you're going to get shredded alive. 
So it's not like anybody's really to blame so much as they just feel that the system kind of conditions you to behave in this manner. And a lot of them hmm. also point out that the real place to speak your mind is in caucus. Now, I would say that, in fact, it's usually the leaders and the leader circle who says caucus is the place to speak up. Because as I mentioned, staff are there. So there's a lot of sort of a mm -hmm. of silence. A lot of people don't really feel comfortable speaking there. The real place now to speak up is actually in regional caucus. Because in regional caucus, you can speak with your colleagues and you don't really have as much fear and there's more opportunity. There's fewer members there. So you can speak up. But of course, there's these are layers removed away from power. Um, and so being able to speak your mind in public, the days wow. of doing that, I would argue, are, are long gone. Because if you do that, you really risk the possibility of your entire career just imploding. And if you're if you're making your concerns known or bitching or complaining in regional caucus. I mean, those are people that by and large are like-minded. They understand why you're raising issue X because they live there too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah you're, you're you like, know, you so you, important, if anything. Yeah. You're, you're preaching to the converted. So what uh, the two of you spend your academic lives doing this research, you, you get to watch the news every day as well and see what happens. What are you Worried, Alex, I'll stay with you on this one. Are you worried about the fate and future of democracy, about how this functions, whether it's even a, a relevant body? I, I, I'll come back later and talk about some of the operational stuff, but just that big picture. So in ultimately on balance, I have a lot of confidence that Canada is heading in the right direction. I mean, things like the Charter of Rights and Freedoms are ultimately making Canada a better place. But I think what is increasingly happening is Parliament is becoming perceived as irrelevant. And that's the problem. Once you're perceived as irrelevant, you effectively, your, your relevance does decline. And mm -hmm. the, the real issue I think that people don't fully recognize is the implications of having members of the governing party acting as though they are part of the government. So when there's a cabinet and every minister has a parliamentary secretary, the parliamentary secretary is not part of the government. The parliamentary secretary is not part of cabinet. And yet the parliamentary secretary is always going to behave as though they're a quasi cabinet minister. Then you have- all And speaks for the minister, right. yeah. Right, so then you have all these backbenchers who want to become a parliamentary secretary, want to become a minister. Mm -hmm. They all are climbing up. They're all repeating the government's line. Essentially, what we end up having is a bunch of vote machines who are just spinning out what is being provided to them. That's the perception. So I think the challenge for Canadian democracy is the perceived irrelevance of parliament. That, in effect, reduces its relevance. Well, what we've seen here in the in the middle of COVID, uh, and it troubles me greatly, which is that's we've decided that debate and discussion isn't that important if there's an emergency. So the more that politicians can claim there's an emergency, the less real debate there is. For example, in the Senate, we're not even uh, functioning in a virtual manner yet. The House of Commons is. So when we gather for one day here or one day there, um, we're, we're just expected to pass this legislation because people are in need without the proper scrutiny. Well, if you can do it in 15 minutes in the middle of COVID, then why do you need two weeks or two months or two days when there's no COVID? 
you should and and I don't think there's an appreciation that that debate and that discussion is just not happening. It's just being denied at this point. Right. So the, the ultimate responsibility here is on the legislators themselves. So if enough members of the House of Commons or enough senators all grouped together and said, we mm-hmm. are putting up with this, we are going to stick it to the government to let them know that we matter. Then the government would learn pretty fast that they can't take the parliament for granted. But as long as there is a majority of members of the legislature willing to go along with what the government says, then the government has every reason to say, well, you know, why why should we worry about parliament? We know that ultimately they're just going to go along with us. I want to talk about that very issue of ma- of majorities and minorities at this point, but I just want to go back to Jean-Francois for a moment, because if we're talking about COVID as a reason to undermine democratic debate or the ability to question the actions of, of government of the day, what, I mean, what did we do in other crises? What happened to voting in World War One and World War Two and other situations? Did you see any blips in the system? Well, uh, closure uh, was introduced in 1913, right on the eve of World War I in a crisis situation without the consent of the opposition party. By, yeah, just explain what closure is because it's yes, still used today. I, yeah. I am a, a parliamentary <laughs> nerd. I apologize. So closure, is the, uh, as the, the word entails, is a forced ending of debate, if you will, right. in parliament. and. So you close the issue. Uh, we're not talking about it anymore, and let's have a vote, right? So it's 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 really it's like a gag, if you will. You 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 you're forcing uh, the government's mm-hmm. uh, position on the opposition. It used to be you could talk out an issue all the way up to an election uh, around 1890. That happened uh, over uh, the Manitoba school question, and it happened uh, also uh, over free trade in the, before 1910. Uh, I think it was the 19, uh, I can't remember, 11 election. But in, 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 uh, look at my book. Yeah. I, I don't remember what I wrote, but I know. We'll I check have, it out. Don't worry. Have, I have the precise <laughs> reference in the book. But yeah, so it, it, it does, you know, crises, uh, crises can, can sort of uh, hinder uh, debate and discussion if there's some perceived urgency. Uh, it wasn't. We weren't quite yet in World War One, but if you read the the, the transcript of the debate, the, the, I think uh, Borden had some, uh, you know, uh, some 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 valid reason to want to uh, introduce closure because he was in contact with the Empire, and they were telling him, "Well, it's the World War One is going to happen soon, and we got to be prepared. We're going to have to have the money." And so, perhaps uh, it's a, a similar situation here where the government knows some things and they're like, well, we need to get things done and it's not time. But nevertheless, uh, just to get back to a point of, of members getting organized and seizing back the power, I think that the Senate gives us a good example of how this thing doesn't work. Because remember that logic of the reform was to you know, weaken the whole of party, party influence inside right. the Senate. And what do we have now in the Senate? Just as you will see in my book, I you know I I wrote a chapter in the Senate, and I predicted a long time ago uh, because I wrote this in uh, 2000, right after uh, Trudeau expelled all his 
the senators from the Liberal Party. The before, Liberal senators, yeah. Yes, uh, before 2015, right? Uh, I, I knew that based on, on just the theory of organization of legislature that you would you need to have organized caucuses to get things done, right? So I, you know, I think, the, yeah, you can wrestle some influence back, but the parties, you know, the history of, there's very few cases around the world of a situation where you see they had a high level of discipline and then it went to zero discipline. It's always moving in the, in the, in the more disciplined direction, right? Uh, yeah. I think, you know, if at the basis our complaint that our MPs are not representing our interests by voting with the party all the time. So are we complaining because our MP is not of the same party as we prefer in our writing? Or is, is it the case that the MP is really like going against 100% of the writing or the province and then voting or the senator voting against the interest? So, and that's why I, I've written elsewhere. I don't. I don't really like to do norm, to make normative claims or to say this is how Canada should be. I'm, I study and I and I try to diagnose the problem. But I I came to the conclusion that if we rely so much on party, uh, perhaps people should be allowed to vote for parties and not vote for MPs that represent geographies, right? Because it's kind of creating this expectation that this MP is going to be representing my writing. Uh, but once they get to parliament, they basically vote the party. So why not? Exactly. I thought, I thought perhaps having a mixed electoral system when a, where you could vote for a party list, at least you would get that representation. That, that to me seemed like a more logical way because we rely so much on program now, party program. We expect so much from the parties, yet we expect we're kind of uh, putting MPs in a tough situation where we expect them to be independent. But the system now doesn't, it's not like 1900 where. Uh, and even in in a glorious revolution where the MPs would t- go on their horse and ride to Westminster <laughs> and the county or the sheriff or whatever, things have evolved. With our institution, you know, they have some advantages. They're old and stable. The Westminster system is a is a very very uh, powerful and positive influence for stable the Senate, democracy. The Senate was supposed to be. Um, and is to some degree that chamber of sober second thought, the last uh, stage of review of legislation that comes from a house that functions in a very highly partisan manner. Um, and we're there to represent the regions. However, the other structure, the structure of the House of Commons, was superimposed on the Senate because the Prime Minister of the day got to appoint the senators. So they by and large became partisans. And then we saw that process in the House of Commons replicated in the Senate, that there was a conservative whip and a government whip, and you can call them whatever you want, the independent senators group or whatever. But people tend to be beholden to the, uh, to the person that put them there. Alex, do you want to jump in on that one? Yeah, I, I mean, there's no question that the, the whole idea that the appointment power of the prime minister is significant. And so it's not even just appointing people to the Senate. It's the possibility, the lure of cabinet, um, the possibility of becoming a parliamentary secretary. I, I think one thing to keep in mind is there's all sorts of other perks behind the scenes as well that we never see. So it's, yeah, I mean, maybe if you're paying a lot of attention, you'll notice who becomes the chair of a committee. But the, some of the deeper things that a lot of people talk about is, they want to go on parliamentary trips. And if you don't mm-hmm. tell the party line, 
guess what? You're not going to be able to go on this trip. You really wanted to go to this all expenses junket to somewhere in the world and it's gone. Um, but then it can also just be small things. It can be that, you know, you, for whatever reason, really want or need to get back to your um, hometown and you're in Ottawa and you right. want to get a flight on a late on a Thursday instead of sticking around for, uh, on a Friday. And, you know, the WIPS office can say, sorry, we need you here on Friday. You're not going anywhere. You need to learn. Yep. You have to show up. You're doing yeah. house duty. Yeah. Um, these are all these little things. And I'll, I think one thing here is worth commenting on. And I mentioned this in the book. There was something uh, some people have heard of called the, the Stanford Prison Experiment. It was a, a really famous experiment involved, you know, putting all these pretend prisoners together. Withholding bathroom <laughs> breaks can be really, really powerful. When you extrapolate that to being somebody who is in a position of power and you say to somebody, look, you can't go home early on a Thursday, you are exerting an incredible amount of power over somebody's life. Uh, because behind the scenes, they're trying to ma- navigate things with their spouse and their family members. And, you know, right. you're, you're throwing them into disarray. And you're also telling them, look, you're not a free agent. You are not an independent thinker here. You are part of the party, first and foremost, as opposed to somebody who was just elected to do whatever they want. And to me, that contradiction is even larger in the Senate. Uh, This exact same stuff applies in terms of committee chairs and travel. And can you leave on Thursday to get home because there's only a flight at night? Like the whole nine yards, it's all the same. But we are supposed to be the place where... Uh, that doesn't occur. In a, and, and it brings me back to majority governments because I think people sometimes aren't aware. You know, we think of Donald Trump or the U.S. president being the most powerful person in the world, but actually he's got a fair number of checks and balances on him. Uh, a majority government, a majority prime minister in this country is all powerful, or even a minority prime minister who has uh, a friend in in a smaller party who's willing to support them and cut a deal and make sure that they don't have to go to an election. Very few checks and balances. And the Senate is supposed to be the other place. So it's the last place that should be run um, in the same way that the House of Commons is. I expect elected people to be more loyal to the parties that brung them to the dance. I, I... I expect less of that in the Senate. Yeah, I mean, to me, that that raises the question about whether or not senators uh, ought to be elected, which is really a theoretical discussion anyway. And even then, what electoral system would you use? And would they only end up winning with parties? I mean, there's all these things. I think really the best thing we can hope for is that we just have to put a lot of faith and trust in senators to engage in a level of scrutiny that we are not necessarily going to see in the House of Commons. I mean, if we know that people in the House of Commons are under all sorts of pressure to toe the party line, um, you know, parliamentary committees, particularly if there's a majority government, um, is going to be controlled by the government. Hopefully, the Senate can be that place of sober second thought that can also look at the the long game, not just worried about mm-hmm. whether there's going to be an election next month or something. Right, and uh, and that should be it. But but unfortunately. Um, what did you see, uh, Jean-Francois, in terms of voting and voting behavior, minorities, majorities? Um, was there any 
change there? Did you see in, in your long view of history there that people behaved any differently? There's definitely uh, like a, a pattern of, of tighter party discipline when uh, under minority government, because you cannot afford to sort of lose, if you're the government, you cannot afford right. to, to lose a, uh, you know, a vote or two when it comes down to uh, a government survival. Uh, you know, one, one, one thing you can notice is that the larger the caucus, the win a majority government is, say Mulroney in 1984. Right. Uh, and for Alex can talk a bit about this because he's interviewed Brian Mulroney, but it's a little harder to hold the caucus together because you have, uh -huh. in this case, you have Western interests, Quebec interests together. And um, so that's, that's one thing I noticed. I also looked at how parties vote together, who supports whom during minority government. Not the most recent one, but uh, the three right. we, uh, we had in, 2000s, in the 2000s. And uh, what I found uh, is that, I mean, it's, it's not always what you expect, that you expect the, the NDP is going to vote with the liberals under Martin. Sometimes you, you or the conservative are going to get the liberal support. Sometimes you have the NDP voting with, uh, with the conservative when, the, when Harper was in uh, a minority government. And the only explanation I found was that they were broke. You know, the party had no money. They weren't popular. So they were telling their MPs, you know what? And that's what happened with the... the we can't the afford an election. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And the latest uh, Tron speech, um, the Quebec MP uh, did not vote with the NDP to support the Liberal uh, on the uh, amendment about um, uh, proposed by the Bloc Québécois on, on funding uh, for COVID, if I recall. I, 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 right, right. And, and, and the only reason I can think of is like, we can afford with the NDP, right? We're supporting government, but we can afford some dissension in order to protect our only representative in Quebec who can, who, or else he'll be attacked by the blog by saying, look, he's voting against the interests of the province and whatnot. But if you're a liberal and from Quebec, you can't, uh, you can't, you know, when it's a minority government, you can't be told, you can't ask the whip, can I go to the bathroom during the vote and, and come back right. when the vote is over or fly home or whatever, or even, you know, vote against my own party. God, some people do, uh, some MPs still do it, but it's it's really right. a handful of MPs and it's very rare. No, that's exactly the only, that's the only uh, option you're left, right? Which is you accidentally on purpose leave the room when the vote occurs so <laughs> and and it's you know you may even be punished uh, for that mm -hmm. in that case there's another issue and you've just mentioned it Jean-Francois because it's always there the the competing interests and sometimes you have and I'm thinking back to the uh, to the NEP um, debate the national energy plan certainly during the constitution uh, some issues today on energy, but but not always. You see Quebec nationalists and uh, Western... Um, regionalist. Yeah, regionalists. That's a, that's a good word to put it. Sometimes forming common cause <laughs> and uh, against, uh, you know, the party. Have you, is there a history of that that you've seen in the voting in the numbers? Yeah, if well, the the first rebellion that uh, that occurred ab about uh, related to like the imposition of party discipline in Parliament 
is 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 a is a Western movement, a Western grown movement, the progressive movement mm-hmm. around nineteen hundred, like beginning of the twentieth century, all, and the creation of the Progressive Party, which is it, it was it, is more like it, you know it, it it occurred first in the province and then it was transferred to the federal parliament. Uh, but uh, Thomas Crevar, which was the first leader, used to be a liberal. He sat with the conservative. He moved around quite a bit. But the main, one of the main reason in in the in, in uh, even in the uh, you know the uh, sort of the, the the platform of the party was to say, look, we're not, we're not going to let the MPs uh, succumb to party discipline, to money interest, and and what they call partyism at the time. We're going to let them vote. Their district vote their conscience. We're gonna have recall election. All of this was, you know, you 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 listen to Preston Manning in in uh, in 1994, and you hear the same sort of issues popping up about we want our MPs to, to represent the interest of our district. We want to have some recall. But this 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 sort of sort of first movement against party discipline uh, was already in play in the 1920, and that's the first third party we organized third party we had in parliament so one of the argument i make in this book is you, you can have a lot of party discipline and it can work if there there's only a left and right division you'll have two parties right. but throw in western interests throw in quebec nationalists the party system is going to explode or unless you let mps pretty much break party line every once in a while and block you know the, 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 the block quebec in 1993 after the, the disappearance i mean the um l'échec, I'm, I'm looking for the word in English, the failure of the Meech Lake Accord right. that really uh, mobilized na- Quebec nationalists inside the Liberal Party and inside the Conservative Party. And they went ahead and from Parliament created a new party, the Black Québécois, which is still around today. And so Mulroney that, had brought a lot of those people in. Exactly. Yeah. So that, there's a danger to have these cross-cutting, you know, opposing mm-hmm. coalition inside the same party they can they can it can work for a little bit, but if you impose discipline, if you you know you try to get the, uh, your MP to, to all go in the same direction, it might backfire, and you, you'll be left with a broken party system as as it happened Alex. in the twenties and in the nineteen nineties. Alex, I'm dying to hear you on this. Jump uh, in. Well, I mean, I, I can't let any comment about Mulroney pass up without remarking on what I found about him. And part of it was what he had told me, but also some other members, because whenever you do research, you need to double check, of course. I, it was amazing. Right. Like, I'd always wondered, why is why was Mulroney so um, unpopular nationally at one point and yet still able to hold on to his caucus? I mean, it's it's a kind of a puzzle because it you know nowadays you know even Andrew Shears get kind of gets run out of town and yet the Conservatives got more votes than the Liberals did in the election. Um, exactly. Brian Mulroney is able to hold everybody together, and a lot of it had to do with, and and a lot of people have heard this, but I I'd never seen it written down anywhere the way I have. It was phoning people on their birthdays. It was. Means that one of the things I found most interesting, uh, Pat Carney mentions it in her book. She says that at one point her son graduated from high school and she, her son got a letter from the prime minister saying, congratulations for, for graduating from high school. And it's like, how does he even know this? You know, like yes. handwritten. I mean, 
it was the amount of effort that he put in. And he was explaining to me when we spoke that this is really, really important because if you can't keep your caucus together as a prime minister, you're not going anywhere. And the reason why I want to bring this up is because 100% true. contrast yeah. in, a, in a way to Justin Trudeau as prime minister, because I was also really struck at how Justin Trudeau is a very different prime minister than every other prime minister we've had. He's the only prime minister who has grown up as a celebrity from birth, who has constantly had mm-hmm. media attention, who has embodied the Liberal Party, and who people have sought him out. You know, even Pierre Trudeau had to cultivate the support of the Liberal Party to him. Right. And so as a result, I think what's happened with Justin Trudeau is all of these peep staff kind of act as layers the way you would around a celebrity as gatekeeper and are dealing mm-hmm. with things on his behalf. And this ends up alienating a lot of liberal MPs who feel like they never get any time with Justin Trudeau. And it was only with the SNC-Lavalin crisis that all of a sudden Trudeau started spending time with people, reaching out to them, having lunch with them, all the kinds of things that Trudeau, or, well, Trudeau, his father and others did on a regular basis. Yeah. And certainly and, Brian and definitely, yes. Yeah. No, I think that's a really, really important point because, it, you know, with, with Justin Trudeau, what you see is it's all about him. Now, it, it was the case with his father, too, but he had people do that on his behalf. Prime ministers can't do all the research uh, themselves, you know. Um, but, but I think you're right. I think until he was, his back was uh, against the wall, he didn't understand how important that was. And Mulroney was superb at it, absolutely superb. He, he understood that was the glue, and without the glue... Um, then you get those little breaks in caucus. You get somebody up and leaving the room when there's a vote. You get them grumbling uh, when they're back home in the riding. And then that's when, you know, the the media steps in and, and does that. Um, Alex or uh, Jean-Francois, any thoughts on, on that whole issue about the, I guess, the question of style, <laughs> uh, not just substance, of the leadership on this question, how it affects things? The, the argument I make in the book is more institutional in the sense that okay. I look at the, like I mentioned before, the, the structure of the party system right. in Parliament. So uh, I, although I don't doubt that individual played an important role, like the personality of Trudeau, father or son, or uh, Wilfrid Laurier and the decision that uh, these people made in office, they, they had a role to play. I, what really I found is that the institution are are pretty darn good at explaining the variation we see in the voting records. And that's excluding uh, sort of personality quirks. I'm not, I'm not denying that they have an effect, but it's, it's difficult to, to, to sort of try to measure to that. Get it from the voting records. Yeah, looking at the voting records, you're, you're better off saying, well, you know, wh- what was this vote about? Was it about a divorce? And was yes. that a Catholic? Then you yeah. against that that when they exactly. have both in the Senate and in the House. Yeah, exactly. Are either one of you, and I'll I'll just start with Alex on this. I mean, you you study this, you look at it. Um, does it make you think about becoming involved in politics, or does it make you run screaming your hair on fire the other direction? Uh, it's it's a good question. I think really the best way for me to answer that is that the last chapter in this book outlines um, a number of tips that people have conveyed to me 
about how you can be a strong parliamentarian. So it's um, it's not something that there would be for me, but for anybody who is thinking about potentially becoming a elected official, the, the final chapter in particular, instead of providing, I'm kind of like JF, I don't provide all these suggestions about how to reform things. Right. But a lot of the time, nothing comes right. of it. So instead, what I've done is I've itemized, here's what you can do to be a strong parliamentarian. And one of the number one things that people told me is you really need to build a coalition and support within the party. It's a lot of work to affect change. You don't just you don't Absolutely. just suddenly say, I think this. You phone people, you talk to them, you go to their office, you consult with them, you build a case. Maybe you use the media a little bit, but it's a lot of work and you can affect change provided that the leader has a good sense that a lot of members of caucus feel the same way. As if a lot of members of caucus disagree with you, the, the leader is not going to side with you. It's, um, I, think, I think that's very insightful because I think the difference between how the external world sees members of parliament, that they run off to Ottawa and they go to all these events and get free food and then they jump on planes and come home and... The life is very, very difficult. It's hard work. Most people are separated from their families and their communities, whether it's their geographic community or their communities of faith or whatever it may be. It's a, it's, it can be a lonely and a difficult life. And I think that people need to appreciate that side, despite the fact that they might be angered that that person is not representing them in the same way. I think most people went with, with the right intentions. Jean-Francois, I'm just going to go to you. Is it, is it the same as Alex that you look at this um, in an analytical way, but you have no interest in <laughs> stepping uh, over the line and becoming a, a, a player? No, I, I, I think, uh, like you said, it, um, this is a very, very difficult job uh, to be a politician. Uh, and um, being a university professor is a very, very uh, interesting job for me. And uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think I worked as hard, like in terms of numbers of hours working and the energy that, you know, the conviction that, that is necessary to do all this work. I, I really think it's something amazing that politicians are doing. And I and uh, so the, the job really scares me and I have no interest in running for office. I hope you're not recruiting, but. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I'm certainly yeah. not. Okay. but I, 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 Well, you might want to come to the Senate because we yeah, do have a yeah, little bit yeah. more independence there. No, I, I'm, I'm like, just to maybe to a word about the Senate. I, I mean, in my book, you'll, you'll see that I'm quite critical of, of the reform in the sense that I, I think that <laughs> the, it's 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 really difficult to reform the without having a constitutional amendment the uh, the, the the chamber. So hundred so, percent agree with you. Yeah. It's very difficult to reform. So what do you do? I think the current the positive of this reform is that it's increased diversity in of representation of group that are not traditionally being represented in the Senate uh, in the House of Commons as well. So now we we have that yeah. in the Senate. So that's good. And also like the the whole party bagman being promoted for loyal services. My great, great uncle, Adela Godbu, got a cushy Senate job after <laughs> being prime minister of Quebec because he, he voted for conscription during World mm-hmm. War II. And he, you know, that was, I don't know if it was part of the deal, but I used to be when you didn't have a, 
a, a nice retirement fund plan. You could maybe get a seat in the Senate as a reward for, for party services. This yep. is gone. This is, you know, the commission, the, the way we're selecting senator, this is, this has, I think, as is a positive. But the, the more negative aspects of it, we've talked before, and you've, you're in the, you're in this chamber, so you know, and you, you said, well, it's, it's basically operating, yeah. although there's not supposed to be party effect and party discipline and whips and government there and opposition. Is. Yeah. There is an André Pratt, which I spoke to Senator Pratt a few times when he was in the Senate. He told me uh, that the conservative are making it so like he was blaming because he's a politician, right? So it wasn't his fault. He was saying the conservative are making me, they're making people look bad. They're forcing us to vote on issues that we we basically don't necessarily want to, uh, you know, have a debate about, but that they're playing a political game and we want to be independent. But that's the, the problem. It is sort of, is, and this is what I argue in my book, is when you have a pie and you want to divide it and you have... 100 independent senators, the first 51 who organize together are going to get 100% of the pie. That's so exactly you, right. So I think the, the, way forward, the, the way forward is is to limit the influence, the power of the Senate more as a consultative body by changing the rule. Blocking legislation is not... You're, you're, let's face it, senators are appointed. They may have good intention. I, I'm sure they... You know, you know, I'm not criticizing your work, but... No, you no, still no. I don't. You, you still don't have a mandate, a popularly elected mandate. You're not going to get one until we change the constitution, which is not something that's going to happen. But then, the who is the check and balance on a majority you, government? You can you can have the Salisbury Convention. You can sort of voluntarily limit how long you can block. Block. I'm sorry the, for the. Yeah. <laughs> I'm switching language here, but you can block <laughs> a, a bill for a. Let's say a few months, let's say a term, like a session, although our session now can last four years, but let's, yeah. let's just say you can, with their own, your own rule, you can decide we're going to be discussing, debating, amending, but when it goes, like with the marijuana bill, the cannabis bill, yeah. when it goes back, the argument, I mean, the amendments are rejected, we're, we're just going to abide by the will of the, of the house, which is just where the sovereignty lies. Well, you can still have a positive input and let's get that in writing and, you know, organize the, the rules. But obviously you need the approval of the conservative, which is an organized caucus that supports the opposition. So it's, it's not going to be easy. And it works the flip way when the governments are flipped, right? Yes, yeah, correct. Yeah, that's, that's know, exactly it. And, and the government caucus inside Senate is, is the same. Um, you know, it's, it, I, I don't know. It's, it's puzzling. Alex, I'll give you one final last word on this. I, I think the, the main thing is that for most Canadians, it would be what really matters to them. And I, I'm not so sure that a lot of them really get all that upset about what happens in Ottawa, what happens on Parliament Hill, until they have a reason to do so. So I think that they, they don't necessarily pay attention to the, the daily to and fro, but if they feel that the government is trampling on democracy, that they will respond to that, that they get very upset at that. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the biggest example of that would, to me, would be the pipeline debate, 1957, and people just getting so frustrated with the, the arrogance of the government of the day. So I think that a government always has to be very careful. And we saw that a little bit with MP Scott Reed taking a stand early on uh, about uh, how the government was approaching, trying to 
get all these spending powers for you know over a year. You need people like that to be able to just stand up and say, wait a second, what's going on here? Like we have to mm-hmm. respect that parliament exists for a reason. I think it's a really uh, an excellent point, and it I think it is it it is incumbent on all of us to uh, whether uh, an elected member of parliament or an appointed member of the Senate to take our responsibilities seriously. We've got to go in there and do our job. I'm there to represent my region and the interests that they care about, and I'm there to be a check and balance on government. And if I just put my hand up because the you know if I'm the monkey and the grinder tells me. Uh, then I'm not worthy of of the job, and I think it's I think you've hit on a point that the public expects us to do this. This um, great conversation today. Thank you so much, Alex Marlin's book, Whipped: Party Discipline in Canada, and Jean Francois Godbout. Goodbow, Godbow. Am I getting that close? Yes. <laughs> Lost on division, party unity in the Canadian Parliament. You guys are really doing good work. And I'll bring you together again for sure. I'll just leave us all with this thought. Some wise uh, person said this the first act of all persuasion is clarity of purpose. And I think our two guests today really helped us focus in on what our purpose should be, those of us who uh, serve through the House of Commons or the Senate of Canada. Thanks again. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you.